Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the fastest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey of revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. So what do you say, neighbor? Welcome to the end of the road, I guess. That's right, listeners. Today we'll be discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1981 comedy Neighbors, starring John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, and Kathy Moriarty, directed by John G. Albertson. This movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 34 minutes. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd are at it again. But this time they're on opposite sides of the fence. The backyard fence, that is. And the results are uproarious. Earl Keyes, Belushi, is a slightly overweight, fairly average guy who is approaching middle age. He leads a reasonably comfortable life with his family in their suburban home until the house next door is bought by a truly odd couple. Vic, Aykroyd, and Ramona, Kathy Moriarty, who quickly proceed to drive Earl crazy. Vic's lunatic behavior has Earl running in circles, while Ramona's coarse seductiveness leaves him panting. In short, Earl's tranquil life is suddenly turned upside down. If it's laughs you want, these are the neighbors to look in on. In a not-too-distant suburb on a very quiet street, a comic nightmare. Neighbors! Neighbors. So that was what's on the box. How are we doing, Jason? <laughs> We're doing good, Bill. Are we ready to go on this wild ride? Yes. This comic nightmare? <laughs> comic nightmare is a good way to put it. Yes, yeah. I was saying that a little tongue in cheek there. This was wild. Can't wait to get into it with you. All right. So let's uh, move into our earliest memories. What are some of our <laughs> earliest memories of. <laughs> Neighbors, Jason, I know you have a whole bunch to share. Absolutely. I have so many, Bill. And so many meaning zero. Because honestly, when you had added this film to our schedule, I had no idea what it was. I'd never heard of it. Now, granted, I certainly haven't heard of every film ever made during the 1980s. But still, this one I had absolutely no concept of. Of course, I made the immediate connection to the more recent Seth Rogen sack Efron vehicle by the same name, Neighbors, which came out in 2014. So that doesn't qualify for a 1980s film. However, this one was just not on my radar, man. And then you described it and I was like, no, no clue. Still no clue. So uh, thus, no early memories for me. So, hey, fun, man. Brand new movie for me to entertain and hopefully be entertained by. What are your earliest memories of this film? Okay, Jason. So Neighbors for me was the classic strict bedtime movie dilemma. So I was watching this with my dad on HBO when it first came out. Okay. And of course, nine o'clock bedtime doesn't matter about 40 minutes into the movie. So I had to go to bed. So I like saw the first 40 minutes and I think the only reason my dad let me watch it is because it was John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd who had done Blues Brothers together. And that's one of my dad's all-time favorite movies. Yeah. So I don't think he knew what we were getting into when we saw this. <laughs> and 
I remember at one point asking my dad what porking meant because I think I was. There we go. I don't even think I was ten years old when this was on cable, and my dad gave me the you know I'm gonna I'm gonna well well son um how do I explain what that means and when a man loves a woman yes so I kind of figured what it meant but I had never heard that term before. And I'll be honest, I don't think I've ever heard that term used since. I think it's the only time I've ever heard the term porking used in a movie. Oh, yeah. I believe I've got that in my notes, my friend. Do you? Okay. It won't be the last time you hear it in this podcast. (laughs) Okay. And then I don't even remember when I finally saw the whole movie because at that point I had heard so many bad things about this movie. And even what I saw, I remember not understanding it and kind of not liking it anyway, that I wasn't in a rush to finish it. It was probably another eight or nine years later till I finally saw it. And this is the first time I've seen it since then. And I was surprised how much I remembered. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I still had the same feelings watching it all these years later. Amazing. I can't even imagine watching this as a child. And I'm not surprised that you do remember so much because it does leave an impression. That's for sure. But it I just wanted to say so many things. That's great. I'm glad you shared that. It's just that funny scenario when you watch a film with a parent, especially if they haven't seen it before, and then you get to both be awkward in the situation. You just don't know how to react. We all have that classic story of watching a film with, let's just say, maybe adult content or inappropriate content, whatever it may be, you're just cringing and dying on the inside because you're watching it with your parents. It's just so uncomfortable. Right. And well, uh, first there was always that initial, your parents knew what was coming up next and would make you leave the room. And it was like, how do they know this? How do they know? Now what I have kids, it's like, Oh crap. Okay. You guys got to leave the room. What do you mean? I think it's even funnier though, that your dad hadn't seen it either. So he, there's just like nothing he can do about it. It just unfolds as is. But the fact that this was also a strict bedtime situation too. I was actually thinking about this the other day when you would just try to stay up as late as you could as a kid, especially when I was watching my favorite movies or television programs. And my mom told me I absolutely had to go to bed. It was bedtime. It was nine o'clock or whatever it was because it was a little earlier when you're a kid. I would get really upset. And I was doing some research about our director, actually, and some of his films. And he had directed a film called A Night in Heaven, one of his 80s films. This is John G. Adelson. And in the movie A Night in Heaven, there's Christopher Atkins. And I thought I got confused with these actors. I thought Christopher Atkins was William Catt. And then that made me think of The Greatest American Hero, which was one of my favorite TV shows as a kid. And then that led me down the rabbit hole of, oh, I remember watching one of my favorite episodes of The Greatest American Hero. It may have actually been the pilot. And my mom made me go to bed before the pilot episode was over. And I was bawling. I was crying. I was so mad at my mom for making me go to bed before the show was over. I Oh, I hated her for that. It was hilarious. And the only other time I got that mad at my mom making me go to bed on time was when I was about to get my high score on Missile Command on Atari. I was playing and she didn't realize how much that meant to me. She's like, turn it off. Turn the video games off. Video games are off. Time to go to bed. Like, you don't understand, I'm about to get my highest score. Yeah, you could send a picture in and get your Atari 2600 patch. <laughs> yes, right? 
Totally. I, yeah, that would drive me nuts too, especially if it was the ABC Sunday night movie of the week and my parents are making me go to bed for school and then you go in next day and everybody's talking about the movie and you're like, shit, I only saw the first hour because I had to go to bed. Oh, night. sure. Yeah. God, I yeah. felt so embarrassed. I felt so Yeah, embarrassed. you don't even want to admit that that's what you no. had to do. That your parents make you go to bed early or whatever it is. Sorry to go off on a tangent there. It's just some, some 80s memories, you know? Yeah. As a kid. So let's uh, move into initial thoughts. All right. So Jason, this is your first time. So what, what were your initial thoughts of Neighbors? I'd love to hear that. Yeah, this. well, uh, I'm going to get into it for sure here. And, uh, but I do like to start off with the main players. I've been calling this little mini segment, where were they at? Meaning where were they at in this particular year? And this being 1981 when this film came out. But uh, what I'm calling it now is just the main players, a filmography snapshot. And once again, speaking of our director, John G. Avildsen, I had to slow down my pronunciation just to figure out how do I say this guy's name? Because I think I've always been saying Avildsen or Avildsen, but it's yeah, Avildsen. This director, talk about hit or miss, my friend. Yes. Let's talk about his 80s, but we honestly need to talk about his first major hit for which he won Best Director. He won the Oscar for directing Rocky in 1976. He directed Rocky. Yep. Then the 80s happened. He directs a film called The Formula in 1980. He does this film, Neighbors, in 1981. Then he did a documentary called Traveling Hopefully in 82. He does A Night in Heaven in 1983. Listeners, A Night in Heaven is not a good movie. Then the very next year, 1984, John G. Evanson makes one of the best movies of all time, in my opinion, <laughs> called The Karate Kid. My goodness. Then he does The Karate Kid Part 2 in 86, Happy New Year in 87 for Keeps, 88. He does Lean on Me in 89, Karate Kid Part 3 in 89, and then he does another Rocky film in 90, and that's uh, Rocky Five. So it, literally this guy's batting 500. Yes. If you include the one movie before the 80s and the one movie right after the 80s, he's literally batting 500. These movies are hot garbage, they're a dumpster fire, or they're all-time greats. There's no in-between. I totally agree. Unbelievable. And R.I.P. John G. Altvildson, he passed in 2017. Moving on to a couple of our other main players, we got John Belushi, of course, and Dan Aykroyd teaming up once again. What is it in your top 10? Yeah, of 80s oh, yeah. Blues Brothers, right? So they are back together again in this film. John Belushi plays the role of Earl Keyes. It looks like it's pronounced Keys, but it's pronounced actually Keys. Anyway, John Belushi, famous for three things mainly, in my personal opinion, Saturday Night Live, Animal House, and the Blues Brothers. From 75 to 79, of course, he was, yes, on Saturday Night Live. And then he did 1941. In 1979 and 1980, Blues Brothers, 1981, the film Continental Divide, which I still have never seen. I guess that's a pretty damn good movie. And then in 81, this is his last feature film before he passes, this being Neighbors. Like I said, uh, yeah, kind of mainly known for SNL and Animal House, Blues Brothers. But uh, unfortunately, yes, found dead at the age of 33 in a hotel room at the Chateau Marmont. That is well documented. You can look that up. Lost him too soon. I mean, he was a comic genius. So moving on to Dan Aykroyd, who plays the antagonist in this film, Vic Zek. I should say one of the antagonists, one of the pair of antagonists. Dan Aykroyd, also famous for Saturday Night Live, actor and writer on Saturday Night Live uh, in the late 70s. 
and of course was also in 1941, the film 1941, then the Blues Brothers, then this film Neighbors in 81. He does Dr. Detroit in 83, The Wonderful Trading Places in 83 as well. He was in The Twilight Zone, the movie, in 83. And of course, one of my favorite cameos of all time, he was in Indiana Jones and Temple Doom in 84, Ghostbusters in 84. He has a killer 80s, man. Dan Aykroyd, Couch Trip, She's Having a Baby, The Great Outdoors, Caddyshack 2, My Stepmother's an Alien, Ghostbusters 2, and a part in Driving Miss Daisy in 1989, Dan Aykroyd. That guy just has a prolific, prolific career as writer, director, still working today, thankfully still with us. Still doing like a lot of like offshoots of Ghostbusters I saw in his filmography. Yeah. So there you go. Little little uh, filmography snapshot of some of our main players from Neighbors. And here come some initial thoughts. I know you've been anticipating this, Bill Band. I'll say straight up from the start. This was a tough hang, man. I did not care for this movie. <laughs> I'm just going to say it right now. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, listeners all out there, I'm going to let you know that Bill... I think he was trying to prepare me for this. He prefaced my viewing by saying, don't watch this as a straight up comedy, but instead try to view it as a dark comedy. To which I said, okay, got it. Open mind. Keep an open mind. But this was like watching the theater of the absurd. It was baffling. Overall, I had the lingering questions of what the hell is going on? Who are these people? And why is any of this happening? This is what I would definitely categorize as, I've mentioned this before, one of those sick day movies. Like I have to admit for whatever, like my head was in the clouds a bit when I first watched this. And then as I continued on throughout the viewing, the more I felt strange. And afterward, I had to watch something else immediately just to clear the palate. (laughs) It was just so weird. The music, that's an initial thought I really have to touch on here. And I'm going to go off on a tangent really quick, and it'll make sense. It reminded me of a comedic play that I did, I performed in as an actor a long time ago, in which the director had to insert sound effects into certain comedic situations to make sure the audience knew that the moments were supposed to be funny, because the moment itself wasn't written that funny. And it needed support or clarification so that the audience knew that's where they were supposed to laugh. So now this movie, often a situational comedy where the music is actually like an external effect brought into superficially telling the audience, hey, guess what? This part is supposed to be funny or goofy or scary. Now, I get that a film score is meant to support the tone or the mood, and sometimes it's a character unto itself. But when it overwhelms the moment, it's distracting and it creates this really absurd experience. And it happens almost immediately in the film, right after the credits, when we see the long lone road leading to the cul-de-sac. And at the end of the road, there's the two homes. There's one that's nice. And then there's one, oh, cue the eerie Twilight Zone theme music. So we know that that house isn't nice. Like it's the creepy house at the end of the block. We couldn't tell just by looking at it. It's kind of that thing. Don't don't hit me over the head with that kind of music. It's forced and it's just not necessary. The film begins with this basic structure. It has the frame. We understand that we've got a middle-class, middle-aged, blue-collar couple stuck in a bad marriage and a mundane existence, and they're tormented by the new wild and crazy neighbors that move into the the home next door. But what's off-putting from the start is that it feels like after that, it's just a series of random events unfolding, and most of the actions and moments within those events feel random unto themselves. 
It feels as if the single purpose of the crazy neighbors is to provoke and antagonize. And that's it. There's no reason for it. There's no why. There's no motivation or justification. There's no means to an end. It reminded me of a quote, Bill Bant, from The Dark Knight, when Michael Caine says to Christian Bale, some people just want to watch the world burn. That's what I was like, oh, that must be Vic and Ramona in this. Okay, cool. So when the hijinks happen, they better absolutely be fall off my chair, bust a gut, laughing out loud, hilarious. And they're just not. They're just weird. Look, the quote is, you know, timing is everything. Bob Hope has been quoted as saying, timing is the essence of life and definitely of comedy. And the timing is generally what's wrong with this movie because there is none for me. There's no cadence, no rhythm. The pacing's off. The funny gets stuck somewhere in the mud. There's shots that hold on too long to the point of just total awkwardness. And ultimately, we've got a skeleton here. Like I said, there's a frame, a structure to this movie, but there's just bones. There's no meat on the bones. I don't know who I'm supposed to root for. If I'm supposed to root for anybody, I just couldn't sympathize or empathize with any of them on any level. So let me just say this. It's always fascinating when you have a group of talented people that work together and make a piece of crap. It happens. And that's just my opinion. And it just proves that good movies are really hard to make. And after saying all that, folks, I'm still glad I saw this movie. It's part of 80s history. And I'm glad, Bill, that you introduced it to me. So I'm, I might be a little hard on it, but it's just my opinion. All right. Yeah, Jason, most of the stuff you said with, I agree with, especially the music, which is scored by Bill Conte, who did Rocky. Unbelievable. Uh, Victory, which you loved. And I remember we had an argument about that. <laughs> Well, we right. did that pod and uh, Private Benjamin. So it's a A plus composer, and yeah, the music in that is just awful. But yeah, let's look at some of the other talent that was unfortunately part of this mess. So you mentioned John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. We have Kathy Boriarty, who's coming off an Oscar nomination, right, from Raging Bull. This is the first movie she does after that movie. The producers of this movie, David Brown and Richard Zanuck, yeah, they produced The Sting. And my all-time favorite movie, Jaws. It's unbelievable. It's based on the novel by Thomas Berger, who had done Little Big Man, which was adapted into an Oscar-winning film starring Dustin Hoffman. The screenplay was by Larry Gelbert, who wrote for MASH and eventually wrote the screenplay for Tootsie. Yeah, it's awesome. And then, you know, we talk about the director. You summed it up great. 500 hitter. I mean, he made Rocky, but then he made Rocky Five. He did the Karate Kid, but then he did Karate Kid 3. Yeah. So it's yin-yang on that one. And we'll definitely get into the facts and trivia, just what a mess this movie was. Yeah, behind the scenes. Yeah, the production was uh, very troubled. And like I said to you, when I had a preface of you watching this, you really have to look at this as a dark comedy in order for this to work at all. Even try to get through it, because it is so bizarre. So much does not make sense. It's baffling. It's baffling. It's wild. Yeah. And you can see why uh, we get in the fact that they, they try to rewrite it so many times. They try to bring other directors to try to make sense of this movie. They knew they had a mess, unfortunately. And it's only 94 minutes long. And I would love to see what the original work print, how long that was supposed to be when mm -hmm. they displayed it. Because what the hell did they cut out if that's what they left in? Props to Kathy Moriarty, though. She is so sultry in this movie. I mean, every time she was on screen, I was starting to sweat. Sure. She was just smoking in this film. She is the highlight of this movie. Agreed. She was an eye-opener to me. Like, I knew who she was, and I've seen some of her stuff, but I loved her in this. She was the only reason I could keep watching this movie. The one thing that drove me up the wall, they bring in 
their daughter, Elaine, literally midway through the movie. 45 minutes into the movie. And she serves no purpose whatsoever. Because basically this movie is four characters. And we maybe see six or seven other people throughout the movie. Really brief. So you think midway point they bring her in to serve a purpose. She does absolutely nothing. A waste. If you're a scriptwriter, you cannot bring a character like that midway through the movie and then do nothing with them. Mm-hmm. There was no reason for her to be there at all. That drove me up the wall. My last initial thought is I know most people think the answer to fixing this movie would be for Belushi and Aykroyd to switch roles. I don't think that would have been the answer. I think Belushi is fine as Earl. I think Aykroyd cannot play the Vic character. And if you look through his filmography, anytime he tries to do those over-the-top characters, those movies never seem to work. I mean, it worked on Saturday Night Live in small doses. I mean, he has some very famous characters he does in Saturday Night Live that's over-the-top. But when you look at, like, Dr. Detroit or uh, Nothing But Trouble, it just never works. When he plays the regular characters, that's when he works. Like in Ghostbusters, you're trading places. That stuff works for him. This, as Vic, did not work at all. And I don't even know who you would have cast at that time to make it. Where That's a very difficult character to play. Mm-hmm. And you really needed someone strong to do it. And then Catherine Walker, who plays John Belushi's wife, that character made no sense to me either. No. None whatsoever. And she had no presence whatsoever either. So she didn't wear I would have kept Belushi and Kathy. I would have had to recast the other two. That's the first place I would have started. Casting just didn't work. And I'm stepping on facts and trivia. Originally, it was supposed to be Belushi as Vic and Aykroyd as Earl. Right. The roles were supposed to be. And they decided to switch. But I don't even think it would have worked. I don't think it would have worked that way. There's just too much weird stuff with this story. It needed a rewrite first. And then you really needed to find a strong Vic. And someone that would have played really well off of Belushi as Enid. That's my initial thoughts of Neighbors. Yeah, well said. As per usual, I have a lot of things to say about what you said. And in total agreement. But talking about the performances, totally agree. Kathy Moriarty, I wish she does the most with probably the least. But I think she is the embodiment of sexuality in this film. And she plays it well. But it's the way it's written is so clunky and it's just one level and i just wish she had more to do but she does with, with what, what she, she has, has to work with yes. she does wonderfully yes she is the standout in the film it's interesting like because i did like john belushi playing the straight man in this film but he's so understated and there's such a lack of any visceral reaction to what's going on which is batshit crazy this whole movie that his performance actually didn't work for me because I was like, why aren't you losing your mind? There are so many anxiety-ridden, tension-filled moments, and it just was odd that he was so straight-faced a lot of the time and underreacting. But that's my opinion. So with Dan Aykroyd, totally agree. When he does the character, like you made the comparison because he played some great characters in small doses on Saturday Night Live. That's what you said. Nailed it. And... When he's doing this character, I think he's just playing at it. It's a caricature, not a fully fleshed out, full-blooded character that feels like it has real life to it. It's just goofy, random quirkiness, and there's no subtlety to it. And that's what I think I would be more interested because it's not just the actor's fault here. They're all different aspects are not working with this. It's poorly directed. The comedic timing is way off. The pacing's way off. 
The writing's not good. Some of this stuff just doesn't make any sense at all. It's really confounding. It's really confounding. Like we talked about the music, the score itself is bad. There's music cues that are bad. There's sound effects that are horrific, where it's just cheese ball. It's totally over the top and it just takes you out of every moment. None of it's believable. But um, there was something else I was going to say. My thought is that I actually do wish I had read the book because the book is supposedly goes into, there's a fantastical element to the story because it's reality versus fantasy kind of from the perspective of Earl Keese. And he is kind of the center of the story and how the story builds and builds and builds. And there's a level of darkness. There is a dark comedy that could work, but it would take such a, a delicate touch to pull it off. And this film, unfortunately, is completely unsexful. Uh, um, excuse me. <laughs> unsuccessful and yeah just fails miserably there we go neighbors <laughs> yeah i'm with you too i think i would like to read the book because i heard the book is a lot darker and the book kind of hits that earl has maybe some mental problems so some of this could just be exaggerated in his mind right which would what is real and help. yeah what is fantasy for sure. It's a short read, so mm-hmm. if I can get my hands on it, I might have to check it out. All right, so with all that said, right. let's move on to favorite scenes and moments. Do we have any favorite scenes or moments from Neighbors that we can share? Is there any reason someone should try to watch this movie? Well, listeners, <laughs> the reason why I was talking my ass off in the first two segments is because I have nothing to say for the rest of this podcast. Oh, no. That's not true. So favorite scenes and moments. I just have a couple of, of moments, Bill Bant. And for me, it's because I honestly did not have any favorite scenes. I found this film to be disturbing <laughs> and confusing. So one of my favorite moments actually is there's a sequence in the film where, because I'm jumping to the middle of the film here, where Earl and Vic go outside and go to the swamp, which is located next to Earl's house. And in the swamp is Vic's truck that they are going to hopefully either find and try to retrieve somehow or just to make sure it's in. I don't know what they're exactly hoping to do. And the idea is that there's quicksand within the swamp. Earl gets caught in it. Vic saves him, but then Vic falls into the quicksand and supposedly is consumed and we think he is dead. Now we have Earl, who's all covered in the quicksand and the swampiness, and he's all muddy and dirty. He goes back to his house and he's just guilt ridden and goes into his basement to take a shower and get cleaned off. When he opens the shower curtain, there's Vic. He's alive and scares the crap out of Earl. And they have a little bit of a scuffle and Earl kicks Vic out and then gets cleaned up that's what yeah that's when earl finally does take a shower gets cleaned up gets his clothes on and comes out of the shower naked and who's just there just all of a sudden there's our sex pot who is ramona played by kathy moriarty and she's lying on top of the pool table yes there's a pool table in the middle of the basement so earl comes out of the shower naked puts on some clothes and there happens to be like a rack of these, I guess they're like glass vases. Just bottles. Is that what they are supposed to be? But they're kind of, they're just like empty Different bottles. Colors. Yeah, yep. on these shelves. And at some point she, like one of them almost gets knocked over. And he's like, just be careful, be careful. These are 
this it's part of a collection that he's had like it's a priceless collection of some kind for him and she's being all sexy and sultry she's knocking around some of the pool balls and takes a shot with one of the pool balls and the ball goes shooting off the pool table and crashes into the shelf knocking all of them over and it's just one of those sight gags that actually worked for me in this movie i don't know why and it was just it's so weird because it's immediately followed by another super awkward moment where john belushi is standing there looking at all the broken glass and his like his collection has now been completely shattered and he gets almost teary-eyed it's just weird and emotional all of a sudden but the moment when she knocks the pool ball off the table and smashes the entire thing right in front of him after he just explained how important it all was to and i thought that was kind of funny i had that moment down too did you really maybe you yes. can explain it better so which is funny because one of my favorite scenes is the quicksand scene just because I love quicksand scenes in movies. So that's why I had to put it in. Oh, sure. All right. So we'll have to backtrack a little bit, audience. So the whole premise of the movie is John Belushi basically lives in this cul-de-sac and it's his house and another house. And that's it. And the other house has been empty for the last six months. And all of a sudden, Vic and Ramona move in in the middle of the night. We have Dan Aykroyd, Kathy Barnardi. They're very outgoing. They're very boisterous, attach themselves to Earl, and he's very uncomfortable about it. And just all this shit happens in the next 24 hours, just about this relationship with these neighbors. So Earl accidentally rolls Vic's car into the swamp that is outside Earl's house. And supposedly it wasn't always a swamp. It used to be a lake, but industrial pollution has effed it all up. So Earl goes with Vic to see if they can retrieve the truck and Earl gets stuck in the quicksand. He starts to sink. A lot of stuff has happened to that point. And at first Vic isn't going to rescue him because he wants Earl to confess about how he's treating Vic. And literally Earl is up to his neck before he finally confesses and Vic pulls him out while pulling him out. Earl accidentally dumps Vic into the quicksand, and we think Vic dies. Man, not good. And Earl doesn't even know how to react to it. He just decides to go into the basement of his house and shower up, and somehow Vic is there. Scares the crap out of him for some reason. Does, like, this whole wookie 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 thing. He's like, what the hell are you guys doing? Earl throws him out of the basement, jumps in the shower. So when he gets out of the shower, surprise, surprise, Ramona's down there on top of the pool table, and she's been super flirty with Earl. Earl this whole time oh yeah there's no bones about it that she wants to get it on with Earl or makes it seem like she wants to get it on with Earl so Earl has in the basement this shelf with all these different colored bottles of different sizes different colors I mean it looks pretty cool I don't know if they have any value but it's just something he's been collecting since nine years old so she picks up one and you could see he gets nervous just because of everything that's happened at this point. He just asks her to put it down. So she puts it down. So she goes around to the other side of the pool table and some of the balls are already set up. And she literally says at one point, your left ball in the corner pocket. And she goes to hit the cue ball to the eight and put it in the pocket. Well, she jumps it and the ball goes flying off the table at the bottles Well, Earl freaks, and he ends up more knocking them over than the cue ball hitting them. And, of course, they all fall and shatter. You expect it to happen, but it was still funny. It was one of the few funny moments in the movie. And then, next thing you know, Vic comes down, and he's acting like nothing happens. There's a whole bunch of that. 
where they just keep coming in the house like nothing's happened 10 minutes before and you right. just keep saying to yourself what the fuck what's up with these two it's total insanity it is once we meet the neighbors yes 70 minutes of straight insanity if anyone hasn't seen it we have to jump so far into the movie before we even can mention something that's worth watching that we kind of are missing over what what is the setup what is this all about it's just basically these right. neighbors who move in next door and for some reason they they're antagonizing earl but his wife enid is fine with everything was fine yeah not only is she fine with everything but she's actually somewhat intrigued by vic especially and seems attracted to him yes i agree with that she is attracted to him and, I mean, Earl comments on it. His own wife seems to be turned on by the entire situation and is oblivious to the fact that Earl is just being bombarded by these really awkward situations and the randomness of it all and is trying to make heads or tails of it and these things just keep coming at him. Yet Enid, his own wife, seems to be stimulated by these crazy neighbors. And he's like, what's going on? So it's almost as if Earl really is kind of like the avatar He's the audience's avatar. Like he's, we are Earl. We're supposed to empathize and sympathize with him. Again, I wanted to thank you for clarifying that favorite scene and or moment regarding these shattering glass bottles on the shelving, because that's kind of how, you know, I'm stuttering a bit here, a little flustered because I'm trying to figure out what goes where, how do the pieces all fit, but they just don't. So we understand the basic premise. It's a crazy neighbor story, basically, right? But Nothing matches up. And there's so many things that even lead up to that very moment in the story that are just so random. It's hard to explain or make heads or tails of it. So bear with us. Yeah, that's a good thing about Enid. Like she almost seems to just snap out of a fog. Like you can kind of see in the beginning of the film that Enid and Earl are just kind of going through the motions. And they've both totally reacted 180 on these neighbors. Eden's all excited. She's like, oh, right. Like her life is jump-started again, whereas Earl is, oh, my God, this is madness. These people are going to drive me crazy. I, I can't handle this. So they both reacted differently, and Earl's basically on his own now on how he's going to deal with this, and he's getting no support from his wife. Right. A good way to sum it up. 100%. And I just want to say, anytime there's any like glass bottles that are delicately balanced, like on shelving, and either a character in a comedy or whatnot has to prevent them from falling over or whatnot, it is hilarious. Didn't we have a situation like that in Naked Gun, too, with Leslie oh, Nielsen? Oh, yes. Yes. And with the fish. Uh, I just want to put this out there to the audience. If there's any fans of Mad TV out there, one of my favorite, favorite episodes is with, there's a character who comes home and he's telling his parents about how he conquered Mount Everest and he wants his parents to be so proud of him. And in the middle of the scene, they're sitting on a couch and he's talking to him and behind him is these shelving with all these little thimbles on it. It's a thimble collection that they've collected over the years. And in the midst of his story, he keeps slipping and does a pratfall and falls backwards and knocks the whole shelving off. And all these thimbles go everywhere. And the parents just start dying laughing. And he's embarrassed. He just wants them to appreciate his Mount Everest story. So he cleans up all the thimbles and they, he does it about five or six more times and does up another pratfall falling backward into the shelving. And it's the funniest thing ever. And it gets funnier and funnier every time. I can never get tired of things on shelves falling over. It's just awkward. I just want to talk about anything besides this movie. No, no, we must. All right, let us let us know what your other favorite scene or moment is. Hopefully, we don't match on this one too. It's towards the okay. So, speaking of uh, meaningless character Elaine, he's 
the daughter who shows up 45 minutes into this film is in maybe three or four scenes and does absolutely nothing and serves no purpose. Well, at the very end, they are sitting around the table and it's the morning after. Now, this film is one of those, basically one of those one night movies. Everything happens within a 24 hour period, as Bill mentioned earlier. And it's the morning after a lot of hijinks and all hell's broken loose. And it's almost a calm moment because we have the two couples sitting at the table and Akisa's daughter is there with them as well. And they actually are all getting along. So Earl says to Vic and Ramona, after they've just tormented him for an entire evening, he's like, why don't you stay here? Why don't you stay with us? We can have you stay in one of the rooms or the garage or whatnot. And the daughter, Elaine, chimes in and goes, hey, Vic and Ramona can stay in my room. I'm taking off for Florida anyway with my boyfriend, Dick. And this is one of my favorite moments because then Earl just turns to her and says, you stay out of this. You're not going anywhere. And Dick is off limits. I wrote that down, Jason. I wrote it down. (laughs) Dick is off limits. I thought that line was hilarious. It's the perfect delivery by John Belushi. It's hilarious. And it caught me off guard. I was so weirded out by this movie. Then he delivers that line. I'm like, oh, that's great. That's a great one. Okay. So... (laughs) I will get to my, I guess, favorite scene of the movie. Yeah. So it's basically Ramona gets Earl again. So throughout this whole movie, Ramona just keeps laying it on thick on Earl that she wants him. We can have sex. Don't worry about your wife. We can do it here. We could do it there. Whatever. So Earl comes back to the house after having a conversation with Vic and Vic says, He's moving out. He's done. He doesn't want to be in this neighborhood. And for some reason, Ramona is in Elaine's room, Elaine being the daughter. And she basically says, Vic's left with your wife and daughter. They took your car. They basically traded the car for me. It's you and me now. We're together. And Earl's kind of happy about this. He's excited. You know, he's, I mean, like I said, Kathy Moriarty, she's she's pretty hot in this movie. So very sexy. Yes. I, I don't blame him. So, you know, she's basically just like, you know, let's get something to eat. And then maybe afterwards we'll have a little sexy time. So Earl's super excited. He's like, you know what? Let's go out to eat. He's ecstatic. He's like, yes, this is what I want. Things aren't working with my wife. Ramona is gorgeous and she wants me and I can see myself with her the rest of my life. Goes into the bathroom. We start playing Staying Alive by the Bee Gees while he's doing himself up. He's using his wife's makeup. He's fixing his hair. He puts on this nice suit. He's got his glasses on. He comes downstairs. He's like, Ramona, Ramona, where are you, Ramona? Can't find her anywhere. Goes into the kitchen. Surprise, there's Vic, his wife, his daughter, and Ramona. They went out to get breakfast already. Earl's been had once again. Yeah. So then leading up to the scene that you're talking about, they're sitting around the table. And this is so weird, too, because they're supposed to be having breakfast. They're eating Chinese food. I wrote this down. Elaine, the daughter, is drinking a beer through a straw. Yeah. Everyone else is drinking wine. And then this is the big reveal that you find out. Technically, Vic and Ramona did not buy the house next door. They were basically going to become squatters. That's right. So the people that used to live next door, the Harrises... The husband died and the wife moved into a nursing home and Vic was taking care of her. And then he found out that the house was empty. She passed away. Him and Ramona had nowhere to live. So they were just going to move in. I don't know how long they thought they were going to stay there, but at least they had a roof over their heads. And that's what they were going to do. And that's the, the big reveal then. It's just like, holy shit, they're not really even supposed to be your neighbors. 
they've been terrorizing you for the last 24 hours and they're basically just squatters. Crazy. Yeah. It was just so weird. I thought it was kind of interesting to find out how that all came about, why they even got that house. Even throughout the movie, they're there, but they don't seem like they want to be there. And then that kind of made a little bit more sense. But I just felt so bad for Earl. I really even thought, too, I totally forgot. I was like, oh, my God, they're going to they're gonna get together? This is all going to work out? What? This is crazy. And poor Earl, all dressed up. Always getting, he's like the Charlie Brown. Like he's just always getting the football yanked. Oh, uh, yeah. Every time he thinks something's going in a different direction, it just it turns on him. Mm-hmm. But that's such a weird sequence because that's what keeps, when I talked about earlier with it, like Vic and Ramona seem to just be antagonizing him and pushing his buttons at all times just for the sake of doing it. Correct. Because we're, as an audience member, I'm always going, what's their intention here? What's the motivation? What, what's the end game for them? What's the goal? in tormenting Earl this way, because that sequence you talked about, there's so many different like misdirections and misleads. This happens throughout the film where you think, oh, it's going this way because they want to accomplish this certain goal. And then it just doesn't happen and just goes in a different direction because you think she literally tells him, oh yeah, Vic took off with your wife and daughter. They're gone. It's now you have me. So she just tells him a bald-faced lie. Right to his face. Mm -hmm. Because they didn't take off. They just went to get breakfast and they came back and then they surprise him and he's all disappointed. And it leaves you as an audience member, you just have this weird, upset feeling in your stomach. You can't predict anything that's going to happen. And that can be kind of cool if you think, I don't know, for me, I like linear stories, I suppose. And also I like there to be some kind of uh, resolution, culmination, uh, sort of maybe a message of some kind. What's this all about? What does it mean? You just don't get any of it. Well, you, there, I think there might be a little bit of a message with what Earl is going through and what he really needs and needs to escape the fantasy life that he's been yearning to live. That kind of comes through in the last 20 minutes or so. Yeah, because he's really getting shit on the whole time. So you're thinking, oh, okay, here's his reward for everything that he's gone through. And even that reward is pulled under yeah. from him. Oh, yeah. And you would think, too... Especially once you find out that Vic and Ramona really shouldn't be in that house, that even makes you question more, well, why are they being so boisterous if they're trying to get the house for free? You would think it would be kind of the opposite. Oh, completely. They're, it, what they're yeah. doing makes no sense. No. It's as if they are sociopaths. Yes. I was trying to categorize or just uh, see who are these characters and what is... It, okay, so it's great if they're uh, – what's the, the Oliver Storm film with um, Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis, the serial killers going across country? Oh, Natural Born Killers. Thank you very much. Almost in that way where they're psychopaths, sociopaths that just do random things because it is for the thrill of it. They're just thrill junkies, adrenaline junkies, and they're just messing with people to mess with them. Yes, that's a good way to put right? it. Right? It just appears that way because you said like, okay, there, we understand at the end. Okay, we know that you may have said this already and I apologize if you did, that they worked in a senior care facility and that's how they got to know. Is it the Harris's or the Warrens? I thought, who was it that the neighbors that lived in the house? Okay. I thought it was the Warrens. And Oh, maybe it was You said Harris. Harris. It I just, Harris. it doesn't matter. Yeah. I think it's Warren. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Because they're not in the movie. But so they had cared for one of them and they passed and they know that the house is empty and so they decide to squat in the house. But then anything they do, they they don't even care about the house. They don't they burn it down basically. Well, I think that happens as a result of an accident. But still, 
they are just going moment to moment. And I think like if you really want to reach for a message or a point to it is that they literally live, they just fly by the seat of their pants the entire time. They live moment to moment. And that is what Earl initially is either upset by, but then learns to, or is jealous of. He wants to live like that. He wants to be free like that, to be free of his boring existence and this stale, stagnant marriage that he's in. And he has that opportunity at the end because these two people are just completely free. But it's just so weird. The execution of it is so weird. Yeah. I mean, I it's, it's funny for the audience, listeners out there, I we're kind of going off on in different directions trying to figure this out, but there's nothing to figure out. And that's what's frustrating. And yeah, we could break down this movie scene by scene and how confusing and random it is, but you just don't have the time. Did you have any other favorite scenes? No, that was it. Oh, don't lie, Bill. You love this movie. Come on, man. Break down another favorite scene. No, I had the quicksand, the bottles. Okay. That, okay. And then, yeah, Ramona gets Earl again. That's three. That's good, man. That's great. Sorry. Didn't mean to get after you. That's okay. I don't want to be the Vic in this relationship. No, no, no. You're not. All right. So we just push move on to a segment that might be a little bit longer than normal. And that's our Swiss cheese and complaint department. And <laughs> uh, why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes. And if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. Jason, you want to go first? Sure. I was going to say, and, and sometimes this movie isn't delicious. Yes. It's funny how I wrote that initially, assuming that all these 80s movies we would cover were nostalgic favorites. But you can still it's have nostalgic it's yeah. attachments to bad movies. Yes. Right? You As you do, you had some great early memories. Here's just a hole for me. In the in, Speaking of just random things. In the beginning of the film, when we're introduced to the crazy neighbors who literally seem to magically appear within Earl and Enid's home. It's not as if they knock on the door and say, hey, we're your new neighbors, Vic and Ramona. And they'd be like, oh, come on in. Nice to meet you. Have a seat. Let's make you a drink. No, they just kind of help themselves into their home. And the bottom line is, Earl wants to entertain the new neighbors now that they've made their way inside their home, wants to have them for dinner. And ultimately, it comes down to the fact that Earl and Enid do not have the food to prepare for dinner, so they need to get takeout, and Earl will pay for it, and Vic is going to go drive pick it up. But Vic has a beat-up car with uh, brakes that are blown out, so he needs to borrow Earl's car to go pick up the food. And finally, Earl gives Vic the keys to his car. Vic goes out to drive to go get some Italian food and doesn't go anywhere. He just drives across the street to his house. Did Vic really think that Earl wouldn't notice that he was driving his car just next door? I had that down. That made no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what Bill and I are talking about. It's so weird. But that's the gag. That's supposed to be part of the comedy, too. It's that, okay, he's doing this weird thing, but why would that character do something so blatantly obvious that would put him in a position to then fess up to it? That The fact that he didn't actually go out to get the food. He just went across the street back to his house that he just moved into and made the food himself. It's just a weird thing. And then the fact that 
Earl beats around the bush to get the information out of Vic. I'm like, just confront him. Right. You just gave him all the money in your wallet to go get food. Right. Because later on, then Vic comes back with the food that he's made himself. He didn't go to any restaurant, get the takeout, comes back to the house with the food that he had made. They're sitting around the table eating it. And Earl is just not confronting him properly. And Enid is coming on to Vic. And then Ramona is sitting there being just completely sexualized. And it's just the most awkward conversation and just a series of random moments. Because he easy could have corrected it. And Vic's just like, hey, I'll go buy the food and just make it at the house. I'm really good at making Italian food. Right. Why lie about it in the first place? Yeah, this whole cockamamie story about going to this place somewhere he makes up. And Earl's like, there's no restaurant there. He's like, oh, no, they just, it just opened. He right. makes up a name for it. Now, he doesn't know the area at all. Earl lives there. He knows exactly what he's talking about. So why is he bullshitting him? That made no sense. We're going to make him think he's insane. Yes, that might have been a better story. All right, so my first complaint is, is Enid deaf or something? Yes. I'm glad. Oh, oh, this is awesome. Yes, go ahead. Because you mentioned that, that the neighbors constantly come into the house, but not the initial time. They do not. The very beginning of the movie. So Earl and Enid are sitting there. Their mundane lives are playing out. Enid says she's going to go make some dinner. She goes into the kitchen and we hear the doorbell ring. We hear the doorbell ring three times. And this is right after Earl has mentioned to Enid, hey, there's a car in front of the house next door. I think someone's moving in. Earl goes, answers the door. It's Ramona. And Ramona's coming on some right away. She comes into the living room. They're having a discussion. She literally throws her legs over Earl's legs. They're talking, they're talking, they're talking. Mm -hmm. Earl gets up to go into the kitchen to talk to his wife. Doesn't say, hey, I heard the doorbell ring. Someone at the door? Nothing. Earl goes back into the living room. Ramona's gone. There's Vic. Vic's sitting in the sofa lounger. And now they're having the whole conversation about the dinner. Vic's starving. Hey, what do you got to eat? And that's when they decide Vic's going to go out and get some food. Then yes, this is Earl goes upstairs. <laughs> to the bedroom right and Ramona's in there naked in the bed saying she just took a bath and she just took a pill because she was stressed out yeah. yes so Earl comes downstairs Vic's gone I think he runs back to the kitchen and then Enid's like oh I'm gonna go upstairs and Earl's like no no, no you can't go upstairs you can't go upstairs we, you know the company's coming over you gotta get ready for dinner oh it's it's insane it's like how does she not hear any of that I mean if Ramona took, takes a bath in that house, you hear the water running. She would ask him, like, mm -hmm. were you trying to take, were you taking a shower? Why don't I hear the water running? A hundred percent. I heard you talking to someone. Who are you talking to? She totally misses all of this. But then when she sees Vic, get into another complaint here. She sees Vic. She already knows him. They've already met. She has, she doesn't right. say anything to Earl about it. And she tried to half explain that off. And this is, I'm like, your marriage is over. That conversation is your marriage is over conversation. Where she, it almost feels like it's not important that someone moves in next door. Oh, Absolutely. And I was going to leave this for final thoughts, but basically the only good thing that came out of this movie was that Enid and Earl learned that they should not be together anymore. They need to go their separate ways. They're done. Yeah. Well, Enid basically takes off with Thundersky from the Native American meeting. Or right. But what's is weird is as confusing as Vic and Ramona were, I found Enid even more confusing. Oh, yeah. Really? That's That character is... I don't know what was going on with her because she hates Earl. She hates her husband. She hates the life that they have. And 
is basically making googly eyes with Vic the whole time and is subtly into Native American culture, which is a random oh, yeah. thing. We yeah, don't really, that's never fully fleshed out or we don't know why she is at all. She just is. And that's why she runs off with the Native American gentleman at the end of the film. Why is that funny? It's like, who is she? Who is this woman mm-hmm. that is Earl's wife? Who is Enid? I don't know. It's unfortunate because that's the thing is like she kind of gets put into a she's pigeonholed a little bit. She's kind of just a bitch. Yeah, pretty much. But it just feels so random, though. There's no context to anything. There's no I actually said that there was a framework to this movie, meaning like there's the skeleton of a of a structure, meaning there's a basic outline of a story. But the characters themselves are not fleshed out at all. Everything is very on the surface. And they're one level weird. If that makes any sense, but um, yeah, yeah, I love the fact that you're talking about Ramona uh, because this is one of my holes actually uh, for the Swiss cheese. Okay, Ramona must be a magician because she literally appears and disappears and re- reappears in random spots throughout the movie. Oh, both of them do. Yeah, and it doesn't. It's not logical at all. It, it's impossible, and it just would never. Ha- I mean, it couldn't possibly happen in reality. So. Like one minute she's in the living room, like you said, and then she's in the bedroom after she's taken a bath in their house. And she's now under the covers. So during that whole sequence, Enid, the wife, has disappeared. We don't know where the hell, where she's in the kitchen with an ice pick breaking apart frozen waffles yes. for dinner, which is just another random element in this whole thing. And then because she had given the steaks that they could have eaten, she was actually feeding to the new neighbor's dog who's named Baby. That's the kind of movie we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen. So Ramona, she just keeps reappearing and disappearing. So after when she appears upstairs after having taken a bath in their bathroom and then is under the covers and then flashes her boobs at Earl, where there's a wonderful, really awkward music cue there. Then Earl comes back downstairs. He actually goes into the next room where Vic is hanging out. Vic doesn't seem to mind that Ramona is naked in the room next door. Earl goes over to Vic, who's going through Earl's checkbook. They go downstairs. Earl gives Vic his keys. Vic takes off. Then Enid comes back out of the kitchen, and they have a little back and forth. And somehow throughout this, Ramona has left the house. Yep. She's gone. A scene happens between then and later, and she comes back. She's outside the house and rings the doorbell. Comes like it's the first time she's been there. Wait a minute. When did she even leave the house? Two minutes ago, we saw her naked in bed yep. in Earl's house. And now she's outside of the house knocking on the front door. I don't know what's going on. That's a whole. That was just weird. I, I don't know if it's an editing thing or they just were like, no, that's part of the craziness of the movie. People just have to go with it. Because at that moment, here's the other thing is that Ramona comes over and knocks on the door and Enid answers the door and says, you must be the new neighbor. Enid knows them already. She's met them hours before. She says so in the movie. I know it's, it says she says that she's met Vic right. earlier, but then later on she actually does say that she's met them. She knows that they're the new neighbors, which is weird. I don't know why Enid says, "Oh, you must be the new neighbor," as if she's never seen Ramona or know of, doesn't know of her at all. Really confusing. Yes. All right. So uh, my next complaint is: What was Earl's plan? Like he kind of explains it, but why does he think stealing Vic's truck was a good idea what was he trying to do so we find out that he meets vic they've kind of invited themselves over for dinner vic's going to go out and get food he can't take his truck because the truck has no brakes okay 
it's possible that he's lying. I'll give him that. Five minutes later, Vic drives back to the house in Earl's car and starts making the dinner in Vic and Ramona's house. Earl sees him mm-hmm. making the dinner. Instead of confronting him or just make, oh, what happened with the dinner? And Vic could have easily said, oh, the place was closed, so I just bought some food. I'm just going to make it and bring it over. There you go. Problem solved right there. But no, Earl just spies through the window, totally confused, goes to Vic's car and decides he's going to push it down the driveway for some reason. I don't know where he's going to do with it. Sees there's a brick in the front tire. I'm like, all right, this is probably a good reason why they put a brick in front of the front tire. He moves it, gets in the car, tries to move the car. I don't, I don't know where. He said he's going to put it in his garage, but we don't know that at the time. Right. And ends up driving the car yeah. into the swamp. What were you thinking? I don't understand what he was thinking to begin with. How are you getting back at him for doing that by taking his car? What was that trying to prove? Think, that made no sense. Oh, no, you're absolutely 100% right. It's another just random act, but I think it was like a tit-for-tat situation. It sounds like he's making up a story when he's saying to Ramona later because Ramona has basically busted him because Ramona knows that the truck ended up in the swamp. And he says, well, I just wanted to play a practical joke on Vic. Because the bottom line is Vic took Earl's car. Now Earl's going to take Vic's car. So he was going to take Vic's car and hide it in his garage. Kind of a tit for tat thing. You know, you took my car, I'm going to take your car. But that's not the way it it plays in the beginning. It just looks like he's randomly trying to do something weird with Vic's car. And it's dangerous and strange. And with no, it's unmotivated and just, again, just there's no... Logic, right? And then there was even no logic because Ramona sees what Earl has done and kind of blackmails him. And Earl's like, Mm -hmm. "Oh, your insurance will cover it." Well, why would your insurance cover it? Because somehow you would need to find the car. That none of that made sense to me either. Because I'm like, wouldn't Earl's insurance have to pay for it? Because you put the car in the swamp, so your insurance is paying for it, and you're paying the deductible. He caused the accident. Vic's insurance didn't have to cover that. No. So what were they, what were they going to hey, do, I, report it stolen and then just somehow <laughs> find it in the swamp? I didn't understand what they were. I was like, what was your plan then? How are you going to recover yeah. the truck? Yeah, it just got confusing. Yeah, it's it's really it confusing. confusing. Trying to keep it light here a little bit uh, because I'm just getting down in the dumps thinking Sorry. about this. <laughs> He's trying to fit. No, no, it's not go, your go, fault. Go. The Vic's car, they call it a truck the entire time. I didn't realize a lot of those cars or that type of model, like an El Camino, is actually – a truck because it has the long right. bed in the back. I never knew that. Learned okay, something. Okay, you know, we talk about this. We learned something there on this go. podcast. Because I'm like, why do they keep calling Vic's car a truck? It's his car. That's not a truck. Because I always think of a pickup truck, like mm-hmm. a truck that's lifted, not just a, a car with an extended right. cab or bed. If it could hold a giant but model yeah, airplane, technically in the back, those, it's a truck. Not just a model air, a model triplane. Yes. What the hell was that thing? Anyway, the music and sound effects. The, the music and sound effect cues in this film drive me B-A-N-A-N-A-S, bananas. Now, I'm trying to come up with a few good examples that are specific for our audience. When you listen to a radio show, and it's obviously an audio format, and you're listening, you hear obnoxious sound effects to cue something that's supposed to be goofy or silly, and you'll hear that some sort of or something like that or yowza, or something strange, and or bell rings. You're like, oh, got it. Those are the type of sound effects that actually happen in this movie. They're real. They actually happen. And well, here's a good one. For instance, 
yeah, when the truck's go going in the swamp and it has that old sound mm-hmm. 20s horn. It's the <laughs> car horn. What is that? Yep. So, yes, again, audience. So, you know, when you, you see the car on screen, the horn isn't honking. That's in the score. It's in the sound effects. They just do it because it's a goofy noise and it plays over the image of the car rolling into the swamp. Why are we hearing the horn in a goofy sound effect? When Ramona is naked in the bed upstairs and Earl is standing there and she leans up and the sheet drops from her chest and she's bare chested showing her boobs to Earl. You hear that. It's oh boy. It's boobies. Boobies. Like, oh my God. When the there's a bird that hits the power lines and is electrocuted and falls to the ground, and there's some weird sound effects. Here's the thing. David Anson from Newsweek actually said this about the score. This is a quote from his review. He says, Without question, Bill Conti has come up with this year's most offensive score, a cattle prod of cartoonish cuteness that only underlines the movie's desperate uncertainty of tone. That was part of his review for this movie. And that's cartoonish is the great way to explain some of these sound effects. I have another part. Is this part of the score? Oh, yes. Here's another example. When the tow truck driver comes to actually pull the truck out of the swamp, fixed truck out of the swamp, there's the owner of the tow truck service, which is Pa Grevy. And then I guess it's his son that works with him, the big guy. So that's kind of funny because we got a little guy and a big guy. Little guy's the dad, big guy's the son. They run the tow truck company. They tow Vic's truck out of the swamp. And the big guy, the son, gets into it with Earl. And they have a little tiff. And the big guy gets back in the truck, turns around, and does this giant, voluminous, like, like spit. Mm-hmm. He spits at Earl. And you hear the sound cue of spit hitting a spittoon. Like in a saloon. Like, no, you know, no. you hear the... Pating. Thank you. What are we doing in this movie? And here's my last example. In the scene where Ramona actually offers oral sex to Earl, the chorus provides the soundtrack to the scene and can be heard chanting the word, come, over and over again. Yeah. Then when Earl hears Enid, his wife, then, of course, the choir begins chanting, oh, no, oh, no. As if we need that to reinforce what's happening on the screen. It's really awkward. It's really weird. So that's just a huge complaint. Yeah, my favorite one of those horrible sound effects is in between the two houses, there's a transmission tower. And every time they mention the transmission tower or they have a shot of it, it has to have that electric pulse sound. So you know the right. transmission towers there. Just that. What? What is that? It's like they stole sound effects from the old Flash Gordon serial. Yes. You'll hear the like alien noise. It denotes some sort of alien spacecraft flying through an old 1950s serial you'd see back in the day. It's really really awkward and uncomfortable. But that's a good call. And anything with the transmission tower, uh, that's just a tra- general complaint. Yes. It makes no No. sense at all. So still don't even know why that was in the movie. Don't get that one either. All right. So my next complaint, there's a scene, kind of mention it, with the bottle breaking scene. And Mm -hmm. Vic and Ramona come down into the basement. Earl runs up, locks him in there because he realizes they're lunatics. They somehow trick him. And then Earl goes down into the basement. Now he's locked in there. So he calls the tow truck slash locksmith to come tow Vic's truck out of the swamp and get him out of the basement. 
So when he calls them, they said, oh, the tow truck's already on the way. Someone called. Well, the tow truck shows up. And instead of trying to pull the truck out of the swamp, which they know they're supposed to do because they mentioned that in the phone conversation, yes, we're coming there to pull the truck out of the swamp. They start hooking up Earl's car to tow that off instead. And Earl runs upstairs, sees that he's no longer locked in the basement, goes outside, watches his car get towed away while Enid, Vic, Ramona, the police, and we finally get to meet the daughter, Elaine, are standing around in front. No one says a fucking thing. Right. There's a tow truck here. What is the tow truck here for? Right. What are you doing? First, I'd be yelling out the window from the basement like, hey. Oh, yeah. Don't tow my car. You're supposed to tow the truck. That's where I say there's no urgency from right. Earl and or John and then Belushi's Everyone's literally it's watching really it's very Earl's car get towed away. What is that? Yeah. That makes no sense to me. It's just stupid. It's stupid. <laughs> and then we, you know, we meet the daughter. Look at me. I'm all in leather and crazy. I'm like, nowadays, you're like, whatever. You look, you oh, look yeah, normal. Totally. If you showed up actually in. Well, nowadays, yeah. yeah. And like a cute dress or whatever. But then, yeah, she's the caricature of like, she's, oh, this crazy wild child goth girl or something like that. Part She parties hard. But does nothing. She's naughty, but she serves nope. no purpose. And she supposedly like hitchhiked. And was picked up by the state troopers that brought her to the house in the middle of the night. By the way, it's like one o'clock in the morning. Yes. At this point. And everybody's up and hijinks are just in suit. This is, this isn't just a one night movie. It's a round the clock movie. It goes straight. Like nobody sleeps except for the daughter, I guess, for a few yeah. hours. So it's very strange because it goes from early evening all the way through the night into the next morning nonstop. Here's a complaint of mine. I can't stand it when I hear lines in a movie and I have to say, wait, is that a saying? Is that something people say? And the answer is usually no. It's just a weird line written to be weird or the writer was trying too hard and it's off-putting and sometimes upsetting. So here's some lines okay. for me. I'll admit maybe kind of funny, but still weird. Vic says to Earl early on when they're talking about getting dinner, he says, Ramona and I haven't eaten all day. We could eat a baby's butt through a park bench. What? Yeah. Is that a saying? Do people say that? Eat a baby's butt through a park bench? What the fuck are you talking about? Later on, his wife, Ramona, when lying naked in bed, sees that Earl is nervous. Of course, well, he's nervous because this random new neighbor lady is in naked in his bed upstairs and there's his wife's downstairs. And Vic, her supposed partner, is also like in the room next door. And she says to Earl... What are you so nervous about, Earl? Afraid Vic will think you're up here chewing me? What? I've never heard that. What are you talking? What is she chewing me? Porking. You can figure out probably what she's talking about, but it's so weird. And then I got to mention this. I said we were going to revisit this. This is where Ramona takes up her lying ways once again and puts Earl in a spot when they're all sitting around having dinner, eating uh, Vic's Italian cuisine. She blames Earl for coming on to her when it's been the exact opposite. And she says, he tried to pork me. And then Earl's like, no, what are you, what are you talking about? No, no, I didn't. She's like, well, I wasn't born with your hand in my bush. What is happening? What is going on? Who the hell says that? And then later on, Earl and Enid, his wife, they're having you talk. And Earl's like, these people are crazy. We got to get them out of here. This, They're nuts. We might just have to move. And Enid's whatever. He's like, you're overreacting. And he's like, oh, well, I see how you've been staring at Vic's unit. I can see you've been staring at his unit. And she's like, no. Or she's like, no, I haven't. Her comeback to him is, 
How many stiff nips did you check out at the office today? These lines. Here's my last one. Okay. When Vic says to uh, Earl as he's sinking in the quicksand, accusing Earl of coming on to Ramona, he goes, and is that is where you saw her mammae? Mammae. He says mammae as in boobs, as in multiple like mammary glands. He says mammae. And that is where you saw her mammae? I've never heard that before. Where are these lines coming from? Do you understand? This is like a movie you would watch on a sick day when you're already nauseous, you're, you're in a daze, your head is in the clouds, and you hear these lines, and you're like, I must be in the middle of a dream, a fever dream. I have other complaints. <laughs> All right. I got so many more. I'm just, I'm just going to do this last one. Okay. All right. Longest shower ever. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. I know what you mean. Yeah. So Elaine is home. It's two o'clock in the morning. Of course, Earl and Vic have had a fight where Earl has literally punched Vic in the face. Well, he punched him in the chin, but Vic somehow ends up with a black eye. I can't explain that either. So Earl's about to go upstairs and he hear, hears this slurping sound and opens up his mailbox and there's Ramona and Ramona still wants to have sex with Earl. And Earl's like, okay, give me a second. And he runs upstairs, turns on the shower, gets all tidied up, sneaks out of the house, ends up running into Vic, has a conversation with Vic, and then realizes he's not going to find Ramona and sneaks back. The shower must have been running for 45 minutes. It must have been longer than that because when he leaves the house, the sun's out. So it's supposed to be two in the morning. It might have been four hours that the water was on. Yeah, when he leaves, it's dark out. When he comes back, it's light out. Yeah, and they mentioned it's like 2 in the morning. So let's say he starts a shower at 2.30. That shower's maybe on until right. 6.15, 6.20. That's safe. a four-hour shower. Yeah. I can't wait to see that water yeah. bill. Uh, Just absurdness. Absurdness. Uh, uh, this will be my last complaint. Okay. It's just the simple fact that the sight gags don't work either. There's a triplane model that Dan Aykroyd has or Vic has. Uh, which I think is supposed to like, it's just this weird, it's like a remote control plane. It's a triplane, not like a biplane. It has a three wings on it. It's actually a triplane and it's got like a miniature version of him inside of it. There's another sight gag where the Vic and Ramona supposedly have this dog. Did the dog disappear at some point later on in the movie? Additional thoughts. What happened to baby? Okay. We don't see the yeah. dog again. Their dog is named Baby. And the dog at some point takes a piss on the transmission tower and becomes electrified and all the hair on him is sticking out and it just isn't funny at all. It's really weird. Oh, well, when Earl actually goes outside, yes, to find Ramona to have some sort of uh, sexual encounter and she's again, once again, pulled a magic act and disappeared. And instead, while Earl's looking for her out on the lawn, there's a lawn chair that's resting right in front of him that anybody could see with two eyes. And somehow he trips over, but sort of kicks it. And then the lawn chair is magnetized and sticks to the transmission tower. That was hilarious. And then right after that. I was laughing so hard. I missed the next scene, Jason. No, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, the next scene is then. Vic is on his porch upstairs in his scuba gear and starts shooting a shotgun at Earl, which makes no sense. Anyway, there's a scene that happens afterwards where it's supposed to be like a heart-to-heart between Earl and Vic in the kitchen at Vic's place. And I call it the coffee cup scene. And it's just not funny at all. Everything falls flat. The shots are too long. It's really quiet. And it's just not funny because one of the, the cups that 
is being served there with cups of coffee. It has a lot of stains in it. That's the one that Earl's supposed to drink out of. And he keeps trying to switch the coffee cups. And it's just not funny. I don't know. It's just so the sight gags don't Thick work at all. literally threatens to shoot Earl if he tries to switch the cups again. Yeah, with a shotgun. That's not funny. Oh, he's like a total psycho, Vic, in his blue contact lenses. Oh, yes. The whole time. Not to mention those. All right. I think people get the gist yeah, of it. Let's move, so on. Let's, let's move on to, hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. And there's only maybe five other people to choose from <laughs> outside of our four main characters. So I wouldn't be very surprised if we had the same. And if we do, I'm okay with that. Who did you pick, Jason? All right. I went with Tim Kazarinski. I did not, because I thought maybe you would. Okay, good. All right. Tim Kazarinski. Jason, the only reason I didn't pick him, too, is because I knew I could not say his last name. (laughs) He was somewhat recognizable, actually. So I can actually honestly say he was the, the, hey, it's that actor for me. He plays Pa Grevy. He's the owner of the tow trunk company. He's the tow truck man. That shows up and he gets into an altercation with Earl, punching him in the stomach. And there's some randomness with him, too, in this movie, not surprisingly. But Tim Kazarinski had quite the career. Uh, Well, he's still with us and still working, so I shouldn't say had. He has quite the career. In the 80s, let's start with 1980. He was in My Bodyguard, a movie that uh, I really need to see. That's one I was embarrassed. Oh, yeah. That I hadn't seen. That was on uh, our Mm -hmm. mini-sode. Uh, he was in uh, Somewhere in Time. He was also with John Belushi in Continental Divide. Tim Kazarinski was on Saturday Night Live from 81 to 84, which I did not know. But this I did know, and I was like, okay, this is probably where I recognize him from because Tim Kazarinski is uh, is a very talented comedic actor, and he is a little bit shorter in stature. He's only five foot two, and he plays Cadet Sweet Chuck. In Police Academy, uh, Police Academy 3, actually, back in training. He was also in, uh, he had a small part in Police Academy 2, but he was in Police Academy 3. Uh, he was in About Last Night. And then he was Sweet Chuck again in Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol. And he was in the comedy Hot to Trot in 1988. And then he's been in a lot of things all the way up to present. A lot of uh, episodic appearances in random TV shows, but big shows. So Tim Kazarinski, yeah, still with us. Thankfully, I only remember him from the Police Academy movies, and I knew he was in SNL. But everything else, I'm like, oh, he was in that. I couldn't think of anything else that he was in. He was also in one of my cult favorite uh, comedies, that Shakes the Club. Oh, okay, all right. For me, like I said, there's not very many people to choose from, and even though I've been dogging this role the whole movie, I went with Lauren Marie Taylor, who played Elaine Crease. So she was Vicky in Friday the 13th Part 2, and uh, she starred in the slasher film Girls' Night Out. And her last credit, she didn't really do a lot of stuff, was a Friday the 13th fan film called Friday the 13th Nine Lives, in which she plays a character named Vicky. Um, It came out in 2020. I don't know if she's the same character. I doubt it because I think Vicky died in Part 2. But uh, she really, yeah, she didn't act much, but she did marry one of her co-stars from uh, Girls' Night Out. And uh, they're still married. Lauren Marie Taylor. That's my hands that actor. All right. Probably my worst hey, that's that actor that we've done. All right, so let's move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about Neighbors? If you did the same research I did, Jason, I'm sure it's not all good. No, unfortunately, no. But I'm going to start with a fun, fun fact. How about that? All right, that's good. 
because I was I was interested. We learn things on this podcast. Those of you that may have seen one of my Instagram reels, I talk about how we do have a dual mandate podcast. One is to entertain and two is to educate. And usually we're just educating ourselves. At least I am because I'm a freaking moron. So when in the beginning of the movie, we are introduced to Earl and Enid and they've gotten home after a long day at work. And Enid says very depressingly, she goes, I guess it's that time because she's got to get up and make dinner. And she says, you know, I, I read a capon recipe in the paper. It only takes two minutes to make. And I was like, capon? What the hell's capon? I kept thinking like capers or I thought seafood, but then I looked it up and I just want people to know that a capon is a male chicken that is gelded or castrated at a young age and then fed a rich diet of milk or porridge. Larger than a chicken, a bit smaller than a turkey, but more flavorful than either. Capons are full-breasted with tender, juicy, flavorful meat that is well-suited to roasting. I didn't know that. Jason, I learned something new too. I had no idea either. A male chicken that is gelded. All right. So th- there was not a lot of love for this movie from its creators. No. John Belushi ended up hating everything about this movie from its director to the score. Why well, said so we regarding the latter? He wanted a punk rock music track for some of the music um, and not the, the jazz score that Bill Conte came up with. Screenwriter Larry Gilbert disapproved of how much the script was rewritten. Dan Aykroyd and Richard Zanuck have all confessed that they don't care for the film, mostly due to the post-production problems. Supposedly, John Belushi got so sick of John G. Alvinson's directing style that he called John Landis and asked him if he could take over the movie. Um, When Landis heard (laughs) that they were already filming, he explained that he wasn't allowed to do that. And fortunately, Landis was directing American Werewolf in London, so... He right. couldn't do it anyway. And then Belushi and Aykroyd both tried to talk to the studio about directing themselves. This is one of the times, like we, we always kind of ask that when you're making a bad movie, do you know? You know, because you, you think you're trying right. to do your best. This is one of the, the few times where I've actually read like, yes, they knew from the get-go this movie was going to be crap. And they were trying to fix it, but it just wasn't working. That's kind of tough. Yeah. Super tough. You're absolutely, I I was thinking the exact same thing because we always say this, you'll hear it often. Nobody sets out to make a bad movie. No. And that's true. And I don't think they clearly didn't set out to make a bad movie, but they knew uh, the pieces weren't working. You can tell. And I think, like you just said, the cast members could tell as well. And that's why they got a little upset. This just wasn't John, John G. Albertson, talented directors. We know big hits. This was not his forte comedy, apparently. So, yeah some other problems as well. So uh, we touched on this. We know that John Belushi was originally cast in the role of Vic and Dan Aykroyd in the role of Earl, the opposite roles. Uh, And then they decided to switch the roles just prior to filming the movie uh, so that they would be acting against type. Loudmouth Belushi playing a quiet character whilst the meeker Aykroyd played the over over the top character. Yeah, wow. I was about to go into like two other more paragraphs and you've covered all of it already. I apologize. Oh, well, I just want to say one of your favorite scenes, Bill Bant, was the quicksand scene. I don't know if it's true or not. Comes from IMDb. The quicksand in the swamp was actually oatmeal. I can see that. We'll go yeah. with it. Especially if they had to get submerged. Ugh. Yeah. I hope it would be something safe. Then again, it's 1980, so who knows? So, um, yeah, Dan Aykroyd kind of had a dual role, role in the movie. Pay attention to some of the things you hear on TV, and you'll uh, hear uh, Aykroyd's uh, voice a couple times. He does some of the uh, kooky voiceover work, which is probably better than his performance in the film, unfortunately. 
you when you're watching the movie, yeah, and you hear you see Earl, aka John Belushi, watching the TV, and you hear the ads come on. You can clearly tell it's Aykroyd's voice. He just has a distinct voice. So reportedly, test screenings of this movie left audiences confused. So rewrites, reshoots, and re-edits were conducted. 1981 edition of the New York Times reported that test audiences reacted to John Belushi's responses to Dan Aykroyd's character's chaos and craziness as being too placid and passive. The reason I, I put that in there because it's backing up my opinion. Yes. Of Belushi's performance. <laughs> yeah, it really made no sense. Like, I would be losing my mind half the time. There were times when he seemed flustered, but then he would just kind of go into a, like he was in a daze. It's almost, time. I don't know. Watching a, a 80s slasher movie where everyone purposely makes the wrong choice so they can get murdered. It's, oh, let's right. run and, and hide in the closet when you could have got away in the car. And he almost seems to be doing uh-huh. the same thing. You're intentionally making the wrong choice just to make sure the movie keeps going. But it's getting more frustrating yeah. because everybody in the theater knows, no, you should have did this instead. And that's that's what just makes the film a, a head scratcher. There you go. Did you know that comedy stars Gene Wilder and Steve Martin were considered for the two lead male roles by producers Zanuck and Brown? But in the end, the parts obviously were cast with Belushi and Aykroyd. I did hear that. And I heard Ronnie Dangerfield also was approached. Oh, really? Even with any of them. I don't know how they could have made it work. No, no, no. It wasn't just the cast. They just, all the pieces were wrong. They put together the wrong team to make this movie. That was a real problem. In real life, Dan Aykroyd has heterochromia iritis, a medical condition where his eyes are different colors. I don't know if I ever No, I never noticed that. Kind of like Mila Kunis has different colored eyes. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. So for the film, he wore the blue contact lenses, which I had mentioned briefly, that caused his pupils to massively dilate. Now, I have a theory, though, that he's not even wearing the blue contact lenses until the dinner scene in this movie. I went back to the beginning of the movie. I swear he doesn't have I was thinking the same thing. In the beginning. I don't think he has them in. Because they're really yes. obvious when he has them. He clearly has bright, bright blue mm-hmm. eyes. And they are clearly contact yeah, I remember they don't even doing like, whoa, like, where'd those come from? Yeah. So I went, I rewound and went back to the beginning at Earl's house when he's sitting in the lounger and he's not, he doesn't have lenses in for that. I don't think so. Call bullshit. Did you have anything else? No, that was it. I will then finish it off by saying if you want to do a deeper dive on this, if you listen to this podcast and you're like, what the hell are Bill and Jason bitching about? I got to see this movie or I got to know more. A comprehensive look at the troubled production of Neighbors can be found in the books Wired, The Short Life and Fast Times of John Belushi by Bob Woodward from 1984, and Belushi, a biography by Judith Belushi Pisano and Tanner Colby from 2005. All right, so let's move on to box office. So Neighbors was released on December 18th, 1981 in 1,387 screens on an estimated budget of $8.5 million dollars. It grossed $29.9 million domestically. It debuted number one at the box office, yes. And was among four other movies that debuted that same week, which included Sharky's Machine, Ghost Story, and Heartbeeps. However, Neighbors dropped to number six. Heartbeeps. (laughs) However, Neighbors dropped to number six the following week. It was out of the top 10 by its fifth week. Neighbors ended up being the 25th highest grossing movie domestically in 1981. Amazing. Moving on to reviews. When growing up in the early 80s, we would watch sneak previews with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. 
their review of Neighbors was unanimous. All right, unanimous. Mm-hmm. Two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. This is where I just want to. I, I just want to quit everything. Unfortunately, the episode which debuted on December seventeenth, nineteen eighty one, is not available to stream. In the following week's episode, Gene cited Neighbors as one of his holiday movie recommendations, along with Ragtime and My Dinner with Andre. Good Lord. Roger gave the movie three stars and said this in his review. The first hour of Neighbors is probably more fun than the second, if only because the plot developments come as a series of surprises. After a while, the bizarre logic of the movie becomes more predictable, but Neighbors is truly interesting comedy, an offbeat experiment and hallucinatory dark humor. It grows on you. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a tomato meter score of 57%, and it has an IMDb rating of 5.5. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. Boy. All right, additional thoughts and questions of neighbors. Yeah, <laughs> here, here we, we go. go. Let's Okay, let's do it. All right. Oh, so this is something I learned in the movie, because there's the scene where uh, Earl locks Vic and Ramona in the basement. And then it sounds like Vic is chainsawing Ramona. Oh, yeah. And Enid says, oh, maybe Vic's a vissectionist? Vissectionist? What the hell is that? I had no idea what that was, so I had to look it up. So a vissectionist is surgery conducted for experimental purposes on a living organism, typically animals, with the central nervous system to view living internal structure. Wow. And that's supposed to be a comedy line. That's dark. That is. I have heard the term vivisection before, but I didn't really give that any deeper thought. And it's funny in that scene too, that's a highlight where she throws the empty, she does the no look tossing the empty wine bottle into the garbage yes. can. Did yes. you notice that? That's kind of a cool move. I was like, oh, I wonder how many takes it took for her to do that. Did you have more thoughts on that, though? No, oh, sorry, I just I, wanted I to explain what it was because I had no idea. God, we are learning. This is worth Yeah, it. we are learning a lot. It's worth talking about neighbors. I've learned about porking, capons, <laughs> and this is a sexist. Speaking of Enid, here's a question. Do you think she was in on it, the whole thing? Was she gaslighting Earl? I mean, was she? I'm thinking, was I gaslit by this movie? I don't know. It was just kind of a question I had because she just seems to be so in on the whole thing. Like she's along for the ride. That's a good question. I, it's possible. I think she wants this marriage to be over with and here's the way to do it. Oh, yeah. Either that she just bought into the whole Vic and Ramona thing and she was just seems to be on their side the whole time. Thought maybe there's a little, little conspiracy thing happening there to team up with them and go against Earl. Here's the question I often ask Bill Bant because because you're the doctor. How do we make a bad movie good? Because we talked a little bit about if they maybe it stuck closer to the short novel that this is based on by the same title. If the movie was really about Earl escaping either in reality or within his mind, his mind's fantasy, escaping a bad marriage and a mundane life. Not only that, he's being emasculated, man, at every turn. It's ugly. And... Vic and Ramona are, they just don't have a real defined character. 
Are they just fiction, fictions of his imagination? And if this really made a commitment to going into some weird fantasy, like it makes this weird transformation or transition from reality into a strange fantasy world where we could actually buy these antics and the random nature of them. Yeah, because what is Earl really guilty of? A mundane life. That's it. Yeah. He's not a bad person. No. He seems to have the same family problems most people have. He's not doing anything wrong. Well, like you don't even know what he does for a living. Got to wear a suit and tie to work. That's all about all we know. That was my complaint is that we don't see a lot of these comedies. Sometimes usually I'll get a little bit too, you know, I'll be micromanaging or I'll just be like, I need to know everything about these characters. I just, where do they come from? Who are they? What with the burbs, another neighbor's movie. I was like, why is Tom Hanks on leave from work? What was, what's wrong with him? I need to know his character background. And for a lot of these comedies, especially 80s comedies, you just don't need to know. It's a comedy. You go with it. However, my thing is I still need to relate to or empathize or sympathize with the character. I need to have a reason to root for or like this character or get on board with their journey. And with Belushi's character, like there, he's just kind of blah. And I understand his need to escape. And I think through the last 20 minutes or so of the movie, we get the idea that he really is like, for some reason, this last night was the best night of my life. And I actually love you two crazy kooks. And I I need you to be with us to reinvigorate us and breathe life into our marriage again and all these things. So that kind of worked on a, some level. But I just didn't give a shit. Yeah, by then you don't care, unfortunately. You've already yeah. checked out and that's the problem. I think maybe if the movie started off where you really know from the get-go that their marriage is on the rocks. And then these neighbors come in and sparked a renewal in their relationship, like really brought them out of their shells. And you find out right. what Enid and Earl used to be about and it kind of helps renew their love. Not one's fighting it and the other is all for it. Maybe that works a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. yeah That's it's not over a 24 too, hour like period. The neighbors come in and kind of happens over a course of a couple of weeks. Where it sees all oh, these neighbors who love to, you know, take chances and do all these crazy things. And they've shown us what life is all about. It's something we have forgotten because we've just done the you know, right. nine to five thing and, and raised our daughter. And now she's gone and we're empty nesters and we're just sitting around waiting for, you know, MASH to come on. Yeah, going yeah. through the motions. It's like, hey, we, we, you know, there's there's another chapter we can live and let, let's live it. Maybe I buy that in a little bit more and play it as a, as a yeah. comedy Whereas this one, I don't know what it's – like I said, you almost have to look at it as a dark comedy going in or it's just not going to work at all. If you look at this as a comedy, which they tried to promote this as, it's just not funny. Right. Yeah, that. Yeah, the tone is that, – Yeah, that's what I, I was like, you know, all right, let me think of it as a dark comedy and I watched it again. It worked a little bit better. Not much sure. better. I, I Yeah. But it worked a little bit better, but it needs a ton of work, ton of work. And I'd have to read the book to see what the author was really trying to – because there's not even like a commentary that you can kind of say. I don't know. Yeah. I wasn't getting any of that coming across, deeper underlying meaning underneath. No, it's – they're totally picking on this guy for the purpose of picking on him. And all of a sudden he decides this is great and my life has changed and I want to run off with these two. It just made no sense. Right. And even the daughter who just shows up out of nowhere, she ends up just leaving too. Yeah. She gets reinstated at school. Good stuff, man. Hey, there's a lot of movies about neighbors out there. Maybe, I don't know if you have a favorite. I'm going to list off a few. Go ahead. That are either about neighbors in general, just crazy neighbors. We've got Disturbia, 
rear window, I guess. Yeah. You can qualify. We talked, you know, we, we covered the burbs. You know, you on know this. that's not going to be my answer. Funny games. I don't know if I've seen that entire film. I, I think I have a long time ago with Naomi Watts and Tim Roth. Pacific Heights. Ooh. There's yeah, one for you. Keaton. Well, there's the 2014, of course, Neighbors with Seth Rogen and Zach Efron, which I thought yes. was very funny, actually. Neighbors 2 is okay, but the first yes. one's very funny. There's a movie with Ben Stiller called Duplex and Drew Barrymore. Too. Oh, I don't think I've seen that one. Grand Torino. Okay. Oh, that's a good one. Clint. Game Night is a, uh, one of my cult favorites. Oh, I, I fell asleep uh, watching Rachel that McAdams. one. Adams. Okay. Yeah, I can see why that's not for everybody, but uh, Jesse Plemons is the neighbor who's mm-hmm. the cop, and I think he's brilliant. Is Fright Night on there? It is. Okay. Yeah. Good, good call. I see Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. Well, yeah, it all kind of happens in an apartment complex. Here's a creepy one that uh, I actually, the, the Lovely Bones. Ooh, yeah. The uh, Peter Jackson. It's the quiet guy next door. Peter Jackson. Yeah, I got film. to that see a screen of that. And Peter Jackson came out and spoke afterwards. That was kind of cool. Oh, really? That's yeah. cool. I haven't seen that uh, movie in a long time, but uh, it's a little dark. But yeah, I didn't know if you had a favorite. I might go Disturbia. I like Disturbia. We talked about that in a different podcast. Who's the neighbor again? Great actor. Oh, uh, David Morse. Thank you very much. Underrated, man. Guy should be in everything. All right, so here's my one question. Uh-huh. How many bottles of wine do you think they went through in that movie? <laughs> Holy crap. Weird, like weird bottles of wine. Like the big, those, they went yes. through a lot. How many? Well, I know Earl polishes off one in the beginning and then opens mm-hmm. another one. I don't know. He didn't drink the whole first bottle, but finished it and opens a second one. And then at dinner, they've got that big red wine which we know they finish. And then at the end, they're having a Chinese food for breakfast and drinking wine. I don't know, maybe four or five bottles. I was thinking something five or six. It doesn't sound like a whole lot, but they are drinking a lot of wine throughout. Oh, you know what grossed me out in this movie? Like final thoughts here. Yeah. Making dinner while smoking. Fucking grossed me out. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, can you not put the cigarette down while you're making the food? Yeah. Even, uh, Ackroyd when he's making the pasta. Bad enough he dropped it on the floor and scoops it back up. And then he brushes his hair. Oh, too. yeah. I, he's that, like combing his I was hair like, right oh, too. there's the Parmesan cheese he's putting on there. <laughs> uh, I should have known that, Bill, you would have totally caught on to all of that, that hygiene issue. It's just a real <laughs> stickler, man, for you. It's just like, oh. No, I agree, though. When it comes to food, especially, you got – I'm all about that, man. Got I got my food – Handler certificate when I was waiting tables a couple times. Like, you got to get tested for all that stuff. No, no cross contamination. Oh, disgusting. All right. Anything else for additional thoughts or questions? Uh, that was it for me, man. Okay. So uh, let's give this a rating. Wow. I think our fans are going to be surprised on this one. So, Jason, on a scale of one to five transmission towers, what do you give neighbors? I am going to give this one big fat transmission tower. <laughs> This film is poorly directed. The writing is clunky and sexualized and strange. The acting is superficial. The comedic timing is off. The music is terrible. The gags don't work. It's totally unsuccessful. That's my review. All right. I gave it one and a half. Yeah. And Kathy Moriarty gets Oh, good. Yeah. She was the only interesting thing to me. Yeah. This movie just doesn't work. And I'm sorry if you're a fan of it. It is what it is. I'm okay with that. You could be a fan of it. I just didn't get it. Maybe you can explain it to us. Please do if you are. I would love to entertain someone that is a fan of it, like entertain their theories or opinions in breakdown because sometimes, you know, when we're exposed to different opinions, you know, we can be swayed 
it's good to see the other side of things always got to need, need another perspective. So I'd be, yeah, fascinated to hear yeah. somebody besides Roger Ebert. So would you say, Jason, then this is probably the worst movie that you've watched for this podcast? It is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause I, I, I would not recommend this movie. All right. It's Jason's most hated movie. All right, cool. So uh, <laughs> learning something new. Yeah, learn something else with the pie. So I think at least you're walking away learning some new things today. There we go. I've learned. Jason's learned. Hopefully you have too. So with that, I think it about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. No subscribes and reviews really help us continue producing this show. If you want to reach out, email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook Meta at all80smoviespodcast or tweet us at podcastall80s. Next week, we'll be starting our special Back to Back to School series, where we discuss two movies that deal with returning to school. Our first will be Grease 2, starring Michelle Pfeiffer and Maxwell Caulfield. We hope you join us for this special miniseries. Have a totally great week, everyone. Look, friend, if I do the running, I know you'll want to spring for the tab. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.